Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. A movement, I'm telling you, they're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. It's been a while. There's a lot going on, and I've not really been in a position to spend a lot of time researching, writing, and recording lately. At the end of the day, my purpose here is not to create content. I don't record unless I have something to say that I think has some value. My purpose here on this podcast is to share ideas that I think are important. Truth is, I have no idea how often I'm going to get an episode out now. Hopefully it won't be another three months before the next one. I have a pretty good idea what I want to talk about for the next one already, but regardless, if you follow me on your podcast app, it should tell you when they drop. Today's going to be a little different. Politics is an utter mess, but nothing I say is going to have any impact on any of that right now. Nothing I say will change Biden or Pelosi. It won't change the courts or the economy. Biden will be president for almost three more years, and if he isn't, someone worse will take his place. Can't fix that right now. So I want to shift gears today and look at things we can do something about. Here in the Southeast, we've had a bit of weather fun recently and I've been realizing how much people generally take for granted. 99% of the time, we are so far removed from basic survival needs that a lot of people don't even really consider them anymore. For example, how long do you think you can survive when it's 31 or 32 degrees inside your home, and you can't change that? We had an ice storm, and that would have been reality for people I know personally if power had remained out throughout the night. This is the part where podcasters would usually play some kind of dramatic montage of disaster clips to demonstrate the importance of their topic. I'm going to skip past that. I don't want to frighten you. I don't want to get you emotional. That's not helpful. Getting through a situation like that is all about taking it seriously without the emotional interference. Preparing for and managing less than ideal situations is all about taking it seriously and keeping a clear head. I have a list of survival needs I run through whenever I have to assess a potential situation that hits where I live. Shelter, heat, clean water, flushing water, food, cooking, communications, travel, and self-defense. Then, ancillary to that are conveniences, like can I keep the food in the fridge and freezer from spoiling, things like that. Typically not a basic survival need, but it's expensive to lose that much food especially under Bidenflation. Today's show isn't about telling you what to do. Nothing I say here is going to be direct instructions. I want to give you things to think about and solve for yourself, for your own circumstances. Again, shelter, heat, clean water, flushing water, food, cooking, communications, travel, and self-defense. Can you provide those things for yourself? and the people who you're responsible for, for the duration of whatever this event is. Now, shelter seems like it should be an easy one. Most of us already live somewhere, 
And if you have a home before the emergency, then you're good, right? Hopefully. Typically, shelter is one of the easier problems to solve. You're already there. Houses these days are typically built pretty well and provide great shelter. But if you're in an earthquake, a wildfire, a tornado, or a hurricane, even if your house is still there when it's over, is it structurally sound? You have to ask yourself, do I have anywhere I can go out of the affected area, potentially for a few days to a few weeks, with or without a heads up, if I can't stay in my home? Is there anyone you know that you could just show up on their doorstep and tell them your house is half caved in and you'd be good to go? Can you get there? We'll get back to the can you get there part later when we talk about travel. The next consideration only applies during part of the year, but when it matters, it really matters. Can you heat your home? Just a few weekends ago, we had an ice storm that took down power all over the area. People with fireplaces and a supply of split and ready-to-burn firewood? They were good. Might all have to pile into sleeping bags in the living room near the fireplace for the night, but it's a small price to pay to not freeze to death. People with on-site propane and gas fireplaces? They were fine as well. People whose only source of heat was the electric HVAC system in their house? Those people were just kind of out of luck. That was it. Fortunately, this time, power was restored before the sun had finished setting for most of them. But I was told that the last time this area had an ice storm, power was out for 10 days in some places. 10 days in sub-freezing temperatures is a life hazard. These are things to think through. If you lose power, do you have the ability to heat your home adequately? My next consideration is clean water. According to the stats, a healthy person can survive for two or three weeks without food, but only about three days without water. I suspect those figures are under more or less ideal circumstances and probably decline as the circumstances do. All water is not alike. Contaminated water will only kill you faster. If you've ever drank bad water, you know how counterproductive that can be. You have to have a way to treat water. Boiling water will kill bacteria and viruses, but it won't remove particulates. Still, it's better than nothing. Filtering is a good way to go too, but that water filter pitcher you picked up at a local box store may or may not be adequate. Many are designed to take already technically safe water and remove particulates and a few other unpleasantries. It's something to look at. There are also tablets you can put in your water to kill germs. They tend to taste terrible, but they beat the alternative by miles. Now, this is all presumed water is actually available. Sometimes it's not. At that point, you have what you have. That might mean you have a couple of dozen gallon bottles of bottled water on a shelf or in a cupboard. It could be in a big drum with water stabilizer in it. Just remember that it needs to be stored in a temperature-controlled environment. If you stick a bunch of bottled water out in your garage and it gets to 120 degrees a couple of times during the summer, and then you lose water in November, don't expect that water to be safe, or even for all the bottles to have survived. Now the next one's flushing water. I had a roommate years ago, one of the best people I know, who introduced me to the concept of flushing water, something I'd never considered before. He had a good point. If you don't have running water and therefore cannot flush your toilet, then what? Human waste is a serious health hazard. The first thing that probably comes to mind is just go dig a hole, right? Except that's not always going to be a viable option. First, 
you have to be able to dig down a bit or you're going to attract unwanted guests. Second, do you have space where you can do that? Can't really do that in an apartment complex. Are you going to bust your sprinkler lines? And finally, and this is going to be a bit irreverent, but if you're in one of those places where the weatherman likes to do the microwave trick where he throws the boiling water into the air and it shatters his ice on the pavement, it's probably not safe to do your business outside. You don't want to get anything frozen to you, if you follow me. If you have a pool, you probably have a good supply of flushing water, as long as it isn't frozen solid. A cheap five-gallon bucket from your local home improvement store will keep you from having to make too many trips to the backyard. If you don't have a pool, you're going to want to come up with a solution. The good news is, flushing water doesn't need to be drinking quality. Just don't confuse the two. As an aside, I'm going to throw toilet paper in here. If you didn't learn from COVID, random things can just suddenly become unavailable when people get scared. This is if the roads are even safe enough to drive on. You want to make sure you have a supply of teepee. I'm going to go ahead and pause here because I know I have a lot of listeners from California who are probably thinking that they never get severe weather where they live and they don't need to bother with this stuff. I spent most of my life in California. I know a lot of people who think that way. Things happen everywhere. Freak storms happen. Earthquakes happen. Fires are prevalent. These are all things that have wider effects than their immediate damage. And don't forget, you live in a state on the brink of a self-imposed power and water crisis. One thing I'll warn everyone to avoid. I once used empty milk gallon jugs filled with a hose as my flushing water storage. It was an empty container that I could reliably depend on each week as I slowly saved up flushing water. They just sat on a couple of shelves in the garage. No big deal. As it's not drinking water, you don't have to really do anything special with it. The plastic they make milk jugs out of does not hold up to the kinds of temperature changes your typical garage is subjected to. And I was living in a pretty temperate part of Northern California at the time. Thankfully, it was just water, and not all the jugs gave up at the same time but it was not a viable long-term solution. All right, moving on. Food. Most people keep enough substantial food on hand to get to their next grocery day. For minor stuff, that's fine. Anything serious, and that's going to be a problem. My opinion is that having a healthy pantry is the best start. That's the food you eat anyway, so just slowly build it up so that it lasts a bit longer. Having a decent food storage, longer-term food storage, is a really good idea, but most of us can't just run out and buy buckets of food to stack up in a closet all at once. The funds just aren't there. That's where a plan comes in. Just get a little at a time, a little this month, a little next month, plan it out, and after a year or so, you'll find you're doing pretty well for yourselves. After two, you'll probably be in great shape. I can attest to this. I've done it. If you live on the West Coast, check out Winco's bulk section. They often have 25-pound bags of stuff, beans, wheat, rice, lentils, pasta, you name it, just out on the shelves. Most anything they carry in their dispensers, you can buy in bulk bags if you just ask someone who works there. And don't underestimate the importance of salt. Not only for salting things, but it's also typically your only real source of iodine, which is critical for your endocrine system. That's why they iodize salt. That's something to keep in mind if you decide you want to get salt in bulk. A lot of the big bags of salt are not iodized. So you'll want to check before you buy. A note on freeze-dried food. Personally, 
I think it is a great long-term solution. But, like most of the things I'm talking about here, it comes with some considerations. One, make sure you're careful with storage. One hot summer in your garage now can mean bad news in 15 years when you actually need it. Two, you need to account for the clean water stores necessary to rehydrate it. That's in addition to the clean water stores I already talked about. Now, cooking. Most food isn't going to do you much good if you can't cook. If your only cooking solutions require electricity, an electric range and oven, and a microwave, like most people have, it's not going to get you anywhere. Typically, the power is the first and most likely thing to go in any kind of disaster. Even if you have gas appliances, if your oven temp is electrically controlled, it's still not usable. Cooking is one of those interesting preparedness needs that have so many options, I couldn't possibly list them all here. But each one comes with its own considerations. I'll go through a few things here, but you really just have to think through and evaluate your own situation. I'll start with considerations. Indoor cooking or outdoor cooking. If you're working with non-gas fire, wood, charcoal, etc., you probably want to cook outside. If you have an indoor wood-burning stove, more power to you, and I'm a little bit jealous. If it's a hot time of year, though, you probably don't want to add cooking heat inside at a time when your air conditioner is down. On the flip side, if it's sub-freezing outside, you probably don't want to spend too much time outdoors hovering over your cooking solution. So, indoor solutions. The easiest one I can think of is a basic propane camp stove. Be safe with it. Make sure kids can't knock it off the counter or anything. Remember, it's still fire. But it is a comparatively controlled flame. If it doesn't get knocked down, it should be as safe as a gas range. If you have a fireplace, you may be thinking, I'm set. I'm good. I'll cook in the fireplace with a fire. I can tell you from experience, it is far from ideal, but it can be done. If you decide to go this route, I suggest investing in some cast iron cookware and learning how to properly care for them. I think a couple of frying pans and a Dutch oven would be a minimum start. You're going to have to put some serious thought into the best way to make a fireplace solution work. If you go this route, make sure you learn how to cook effectively and safely while the sun is shining and everything's good. There are learning curves to everything, and a survival situation, even a low-grade one, is not the time to be struggling through that curve. My last indoor solution won't work for most people, but it's a great one if you can manage it. Wood-burning stoves are amazing. Like anything hot, there are safety considerations, especially with kids, but it is a great source of heat for your home and a good stovetop. And some of them even have ovens and hot water heaters built into them. Again, these are not suggestions for you to run out and take. I'm just trying to get you started. Think through your own situation. Figure out what the options are. Figure out what's going to work best for you. Now, some outside options. If you have a gas or charcoal grill, that's not a bad solution for some things. In my experience, though, grills are best suited to grilling and don't really make good replacements for stovetop and oven needs. At least, not most of the time. Their uses can be expanded, but it uses a lot of fuel. Once again, the classic propane camp stove makes the list. It's just a great and fairly inexpensive solution to losing use of an electric stovetop. There are solar ovens out there. They're great if you have enough direct sun exposure. I don't know that I would rely on them as my primary solution. Then we get into open fire solutions. As before, if you're going to go this route, I highly recommend cast iron. And learning how to properly care for it. 
If you don't know how to properly care for it, it's going to do you no good real fast. I once built a rocket stove out of cinder blocks. It was cheap, and it worked well. You can look online to see how a rocket stove works, and they can be built any number of ways. There are some expensive prefab welded steel rocket stoves out there, and they're fantastic if you've got the money to burn. I got four cinder blocks, knocked out the end of one of them, and stacked them up. Cheap and easy. A Dakota fire pit is another solution in a pinch. This is far from ideal, you're digging a hole in your yard, but if it comes down to survival, here you go. You can do an online search for Dakota Fire Pit and you'll get diagrams and videos galore on building them. They're super easy. The main considerations are, one, don't hit any sprinkler lines when you dig your two holes, and that you can reseed the spot when it's all over so you don't have two bare dirt circles in your lawn. Otherwise, it's a basic hole in the ground where you build your fire, with a second hole next to it to feed air to the base of the flames. Throw a grill grate on top of that and you have a cooking surface. Again, I'm listing a few possible solutions. Mostly I'm focused on ideas that can be used in a pinch and don't require a lot of advanced planning or resources. The point here isn't to go take my solutions and suggestions and call it a day and figure I'm good. The point is to think this stuff through and find the best solution for you while the sun is shining. There are a ton of products out there that will probably be better than a dirt oven. I'm not making recommendations. I just want to give you a place to start looking and learning if this is unfamiliar territory. Communications. Who do you need to be able to communicate with, and how will you manage it if the usual means are unavailable? Ideally, you just pick up your cell phone and you make a call. I found recently that when the power goes down, so do all the cell towers in those power grids. If you're lucky, as I've been in the past, power will be on for a grid within range and you'll have something. If you're not lucky, as a good friend of mine was recently, you'll lose all the towers in range and have nothing. As for internet, if the power's down, internet will probably be down also. If you're supremely lucky, the internet will still be okay and you can run your router off a generator. If you have one. Regardless what route you go, one thing I do recommend is getting one of those little USB battery bricks. The ones you charge up and then you can use them to charge your phone four or five times before you need to recharge the brick. Some of them even have backup solar panels built in. Most of the time when the power goes out, You'll still have cell service, but your battery won't last forever. Being able to recharge your phone easily will be huge. So, what are some no-cell, no-internet solutions? This gets interesting quick. And by interesting, I mean I'm not familiar with any solutions that are both reliable and simple. Probably the most reliable solution is going to be ham radio. Like I said, I'm not familiar with any solutions that are both reliable and simple. Ham radio requires an FCC license that you get by passing a test. You have to study for the test, pass the test, get the gear, learn how to use the gear, and learn how to effectively communicate over the radio. Amateur radio has its own protocols for keeping communication organized. You also have to know the difference between line of sight radios and skywave radios, and what each are good for. I'm not saying this to dissuade anyone. Far from it. For anyone willing to take it seriously and put in the work, this is a great solution. But this isn't something you just buy and throw in a bag somewhere for when you need it. It requires specialized equipment and knowledge, and without some kind of backup power source, it will be utterly useless. For those who have done their due diligence, though, the longer standard utilities are down, the more valuable their ham radio and comm skills become. Another option, for very, very short range. I'm talking inside your immediate neighborhood is FRS radio. 
FRS's family radio service. These are the little stubby antenna pocket radios you can buy in the sporting goods section of any box store. The radios themselves are licensed by the FCC, so you don't have to worry about that, but their range is extremely limited. If you only need to communicate inside your immediate neighborhood, though, it might be a good solution. There are some phone adapter solutions that Bluetooth to your phone and provide off-grid, point-to-point communication between phones. Typically, you can communicate with anyone else who has a charged phone in one of these devices. Again, though, with extremely limited range. We're talking probably not exceeding about three miles most of the time. Beyond those, if cell and internet are down, I'd start getting into the land of the ridiculous. A 50,000 lumen flashlight on a cloudy night can be used for Morse code, or you can do smoke signals during the day. Like I said, ridiculous. When the power goes down, comms are one of the more difficult problems to solve. So, take a look at your situation and figure out what works best for you. It's probable I'm missing some really obvious solution. There may be something really easy that people can do that I'm not thinking of right now. But again, I'm throwing out some basics to get you started as you think this stuff through for yourself. Travel. This one gets much simpler. Step one, always drive on the top half of your gas tank. Every single time something happens, the gas stations are backed up a mile and people are running out of gas on stagnant highways. Something you can do? Keep a couple of five-gallon cans of gas on hand. If something happens and you need more gas in your tank, or you need to be able to take more gas with you, there you go. You've got it. Keep in mind, the law of diminishing returns applies here. Gasoline goes bad after just a few months, so there is a limit to the amount of gas worth storing. You can keep a couple of cans on hand, and just make sure you use them to fill your vehicle, and then refill them before that gas expires. I don't really have a lot more for getting around. Just remember that if you need to get out quick, you're not going to have much time to pack, so having some kind of 72-hour kit isn't a bad call. You can keep it in your vehicle, you can keep it in your closet where you can grab it and go. Whatever works best for your circumstances. My last category is self-defense. We'd all like to think that no one will ever try to hurt us or our family. We have this idea that there's so many people out there, and we're good people, we don't associate with terrible people, so, you know, we're just going to blend in and no one will ever come after us. Self-defense tends to be a controversial subject, and I think it's because there are too many people who are just unwilling to accept the reality of the world around them. Somehow, either everyone is inherently good at their core, and you don't really need to defend yourself, or being willing to hurt someone else to stop them from hurting you or your family is somehow morally wrong. These are the mindsets of fools. I'm not even going to be nice about it. To think that we don't need to provide protection for ourselves and our families is foolish. You have a responsibility to protect your family, and you have a responsibility to protect yourself so you're still around for them. Thankfully, this is something you can prepare for over time, and once it's in place, you should be good. When we think of self-defense, we often think of the moment of violence. It's so much more than that. Basic safety precautions go a long way to preventing that moment of violence from ever happening. There are two major categories to look at to try to prevent a moment of violence. The first is deterrent. Are you, your family, your home, whatever you're looking at protecting, are you difficult to get to? A better question, are you more trouble than you're worth? The second is incentive. Are you doing or displaying something that makes you an attractive target? 
The more difficult you are to get to, and the less incentive there is to try, the better off you'll be. In a moment of violence, you need the tools to effectively defend yourself and your family, and you have to be proficient with them. When and how to deploy those tools has to be a matter of good judgment. But if you don't have the tools in the first place, or you can't use them effectively, the outcome will be decided for you. When crisis happens, the organizations tasked with maintaining a functional level of order in society are overwhelmed. The deterrent those organizations had provided goes away. People who would ordinarily have feared law enforcement are emboldened. Desperation created by the crisis is also, unfortunately, not going to help matters. The ability to defend oneself and one's family are indispensable. Not everyone will just take what they want and leave you alone. In fact, I would suggest that category of criminals won't even be the majority. So, shelter, heat, clean water, flushing water, food, cooking, communications, travel, and self-defense. These are the categories I think through when I'm working on preparation, and I run through the checklist every time something comes up. A few weeks ago, again, we had a pretty serious ice storm. It was something we were fortunate enough to see coming a fairly long way off several days. I had plenty of time to think it through, make sure we were squared away, and check on my friends. It's both a long-term preparation list and an immediate readiness checklist when evaluating an imminent event. When the COVID lockdowns loomed, everyone ran to the store for toilet paper and food. I, on the other hand, casually strolled the aisles looking for snacks and fun food that I knew would be harder to come by when we were all supposed to be trapped in our homes. That's the kind of peace of mind a little prep over the course of a year or so can give you. A note on the internet. Each point I've covered here has been exhaustively covered by articles and videos on the internet. Those can be great resources in finding out about products to fill your needs and what other people have done. It comes with a warning, though. One, there is a lot of total waffle out there. And two, don't get into the weeds. Keep your solutions simple. Complexity is your enemy in difficult circumstances. Find simple solutions with the fewest possible points of failure. If you're working with a limited budget, don't feel pressured to do it all at once. Start with the shorter term, more immediate needs, and then work your way out. Now for my last point. There is a giant caveat to this entire topic. No matter how much you think this stuff through, there will always be things that just could not be adequately prepared for. Above and beyond, and far more important than anything I've listed thus far, is to seek God. This is important in our everyday lives while the sun is shining and everything's easy. It becomes especially important when things get really difficult. The blessings of heaven are predicated on obedience to God. Being obedient to the things we already know about is a good first step. God's not going to give us more if we're not living up to what he's already given us. While we're working on that, we can search the scriptures to understand what God wants us to know and to understand. Don't worry if you don't understand everything you're reading. Truly understanding the scriptures comes by the Spirit, and the Spirit comes to us on condition of obedience to God. As we learn to be more obedient to God, we are given more understanding, a little at a time, and then a little more. I can't count the number of times I've needed an answer to something, and the next time I went to read the scriptures, the answer I needed was sitting right there on the page. Usually, it's been something I'd read a dozen times before, but took on new significance in the present situation. 
and we can pray. Prayer is a way for us to communicate with God. Notice I said with, not to. I think most people start out praying by talking to God. It's a one-way deal. Kneel down, talk to God, amen. Good. If that's where you're at, if that's the best you know how to do right now, do that. As we learn to trust God, to follow the knowledge we've been given, and as we want a relationship with our Father in Heaven, over time we will learn to hear and feel His voice. It is a still, small voice. It requires intent to hear, but it is accompanied by the peace of heaven. If you honestly seek God, you will find Him. I'm not going to pretend that learning to hear His voice is easy. It takes time and diligence. But for those who are obedient to the instructions they've received from heaven and honestly and diligently seek Him, more will come. Heaven gives us what we're ready for and what we're willing to accept and follow through on. The more we learn to trust God and follow through on what we're given, the more He'll give us. Christ said that we need to learn to be as a little child, humble, meek, submissive, willing to be entreated. There is a short span between when a child is old enough to follow instructions and when they develop their own stubborn willfulness. In that short span, if they're standing on a chair and you ask them to sit down, they sit down. If you ask them to stop doing something, they stop. If you ask them to hand you something, they'll hand it to you. I believe that this is what the Savior was talking about. I believe that this is the attitude God asks us to develop toward Him. Sometimes His voice warns us of danger, or that we're going down the wrong path. Sometimes we get instruction to help someone, to prepare for the future in some way, or that we need to change something about the way we're living. Sometimes the Spirit just comes to tell us that God loves us, and to keep pressing forward. The point is to listen, and then follow through with the guidance we've received. God loves every one of us. He's our Father in Heaven, and He loves His kids that are being good, and His wayward kids. Everything He does in our lives, He does to help us. If He blocks our way, we weren't supposed to go that way. If He puts difficulty in our path, it's because there's something we need to learn from that difficulty. Just as with any good parent teaching their child, if we listen and are obedient to our Father in Heaven, we will learn what we need to learn. So what does that have to do with this preparation stuff I've been talking about? With shelter, heat, clean water, flushing water, food, cooking, communications, travel, and self-defense? Well first, God knows the end from the beginning, and we don't. We're expected to do what we're able with the knowledge and resources we have but there's a limit to what we know and what we can see coming. He always knows what's coming. We don't. Heaven can warn us, or can instruct us to prepare in ways we otherwise would not have. Then there's the real possibility that we'll prepare well, disaster will strike, and because of our preparations, we'll be fine. But someone else won't be, and will need our help. Have you ever just had that strong feeling like you needed to do something specific for someone? Take them dinner, call them and check on them anything. Have you ever been in need, and someone showed up with just what you needed, and said they just felt like it was important? Both of those have happened to me and my family, and I've heard many accounts from others to the same effect. Without heavenly intervention, or if we don't listen, we'd never know we needed to act. Finally, and possibly most important, all the preparation in the world is inadequate for some situations. 
even when we're as prepared as is reasonable, there will still be times when we need the strength and guidance of the Lord to navigate through a crisis. We won't always be delivered from crisis. We often learn and grow most through difficulty. But by remaining faithful to God and listening to His voice, we can be assured of learning what we need to understand and growing as we need to through those difficult times. That's a relationship we have to develop now, while the sun is shining, or we may not be able to hear or understand His voice when things are difficult. If you're not sure where to start, open your scriptures, read the words that are there, and then kneel down and ask God to show you the way, to guide you. All right, I'll leave it there. Till next time, be informed, stay safe, and seek God. Thank you.